Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This week on Truth and Movies, Olivia Colman, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz star in Yorgos Lanthimos's offbeat historical tragic comedy, The Favourite. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic, do you like it? You look like a badger. Director Robert Zemeckis rummages around in his motion-captured toy box for the model village drama Welcome to Marwen. A lot of weird stuff happens here in Marwen. A lot of stuff that makes no sense. And for Film Club, we revisit Stanley Kubrick's picturesque picaresque. Barry Lyndon. In my profession, we hear many such stories. Yours is one of the most intriguing and touching I've heard in many weeks. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. It's 2019, a year in which the likes of Akira, Blade Runner and The Running Man were set. Let's hope that bodes well for the quality of this year's films rather than the social-political climate. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from Adam Woodward and Hannah Woodhead. Welcome back, gang. Hey! Happy hey, New Year! Happy How were your Christmas New Year breaks? Very uh, restorative. Watch some good TV, some good films. Oh, yeah. And any standouts, Hannah? The only thing I really watched that was new was the Black Mirror Bandersnatch. And I, I guess, like, watch is a funny... It's kind of a relative term for that because, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of playing it. So I really liked it. I know there's been kind of like a mixed response, but mm-hmm. I think as an experiment, it really worked. And I thought Fionn Whitehead and uh, Will Poulter were really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, check that out if you haven't already. Yeah, I love that Christmas New Year break when all of the lists have come out so you can scour them, fill in <laughs> some gaps. I watched Upgrade, the Lee Wanell Robocop. Oh, yeah. B-movie. I, re- I still need to watch Film that. Really fun. What did I watch? Searching in Columbus, a John Cho double bill there. You had a New good Year's Christmas. Eve. And, uh, <laughs> and then Summer 1993, the uh, the Spanish movie that's, that was on a lot of end of year lists, but I, I think was a bit underrepresented across the board. I watched Avengers Infinity War. Oh, that small film, that indie film, yeah. Which. I'd been putting off, and I think I will not be seeing Avengers. <gasps> Endgame. 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 What about Ma- Captain Marvel? Will you be back for that? I like Brie Larson, so I'll, I will watch that. I quite like the stuff. I mean, Black Panther, the Spider-Man reboot that they did, mm-hmm. all good. I, I quite like the standalone films. But will you watch Spider-Verse? <laughs> I haven't seen spider That I mean, we gave it a really, really positive review, and it's, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be great. So that is still on my to-watch list. But yeah, no, the, my my favourite thing that I saw over Christmas was the the Bross documentary that's on iPlayer at the moment. Which, oh, yeah. sorry to any Brossettes out there listening, but <laughs> is just absolutely hilarious from start to finish. It is it is like Spinal Tap meets The Office or something with a bit of partridge thrown in. 
It's so funny. I was in tears watching yeah. it. It's still on iPlayer, isn't it? So check it out. Bros After the Screaming Stops, I believe it's called. <laughs> Such a funny title as well. Yeah, that's I'm like... sure it's quite tongue-in-cheek title. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's 2018. Let's forget about that. Let's look forward to 2019. But before we do, we have a piece of correspondence from Callum Smith uh, questioning one of our favourite movies of last year that ranked very highly in Little White Lies Top 10. Dear Truth and Movies, my issue isn't so much with the quality of Roma as a movie, but more with the place it comes from, that it's a movie made by a wealthy man about his servant. However fantastic Roma is, anyone that's within within 10 feet of a film festival knows that wealthy filmmaker makes class guilt film about emotionally complicated relationship with their childhood servant is practically a genre unto itself that largely goes unquestioned. This goes against the actual documented experiences of modern servants, which are pretty simple. They hate the people they work for and are treated like garbage. I'm not against Roma being made or are people enjoying it. I just can't help thinking how much more exciting it'll be when someone who's actually been a servant gets to make a movie about their pompous boss. And it's worth noting that every high-profile filmmaker who can raise a budget to direct a movie about a disadvantaged person could realistically raise at least a quarter of the same funding to produce a movie by a disadvantaged person. Wow, uh, Callum, that's quite a case against Roma there being made at all. Uh, Any comments, gang, before we move on? I I think it makes an interesting point about, you know... It would be interesting to see a film like Roma being actually made from someone who was, you know, a servant. Or, mm-hmm. But I would just refer people to the interview that I did with Alfonso Cuarón because mm-hmm. he, he did sort of speak about this relationship and how complicated it was. And I think for him this was definitely, as much as it's a film about him recapturing memory and that whole process, it's also, it's not maybe therapy, but he's definitely reconciling that, that aspect of his childhood, which he probably didn't really give too much or pay too much attention to at the time and over the years has has, has kind of come to mm-hmm. realise the significance of this woman's role in his life. But, I mean, it is like a love letter to her and, you know, she's the protagonist and I think he, I think he celebrates her as mm-hmm. much as, you know, his own memories and childhood. So I understand where Callum's coming from. Yeah. I think it's something which... It's an argument you could level at a lot of filmmakers, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure it really holds up against Roma. Mm. And there's a really fascinating body of criticism about the film being written by Latin American, mm. Mexican American critics that I've you know, learned so much reading o- over the Christmas break. I'd recommend checking that out online. They're all, all over the place in American outlets. Mm. But it's, yeah, it's, it's an argument which people often accuse uh, privileged filmmakers. Mm-hmm. It's like the same thing as Sofia Coppola gets it a lot. Mm-hmm. She makes films often about that experience of growing up in a privileged position and it's like, it's not really her fault, so why should she not be allowed to sort of capture and try and explore that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Quaron's sort of in the similar boat to that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Roma. Callum, thank you for your message. If you want to send us any further comments on Roma or any of the films we've discussed recently, you can do so at the usual channels truthandmovies at tcolondon.com at truthandmovies on Twitter or the comment page at com slash podcast. But enough about that. Let's go on to the first new film of the year. It's The Favourite. So the favourite, this new film from director Yorgos Lanthimos is set in early 18th century during the reign of the infirm Queen Anne, played by Olivia Colman, whose close friend Lady Sarah, Rachel Weiss, governs the country in her stead. While war rages abroad, Queen Anne's court favours indulgence, and it's into this royal mess that comes Abigail, Emma Stone, a new servant with ambitions above her station. She'll learn a thing or two from Lady Sarah's unique way with the Queen, as we hear in this short clip. I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? 
You look like a badger. Oh. Are you going to cry? Really? Well, what do you think you look like? Badger. Do you really think you can meet the Russian delegation looking like that? No. I will manage it. Go back to your rooms. Thank you. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me! Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! Olivia Coleman there is Queen Anne. So this is the third English-language feature from the Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos after The Lobster and the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Now he's taken a left turn into the British historical drama. Hannah, were you excited about this? Are you a Yorgos fan up until now? Yeah, big time. Um, Killing of a Sacred Deer is one of my favourite films last year. I mean, he's churning them out as well. Mm. Like a film like this, um, just the kind of like detail that must have gone into it. I'm amazed that he kind of made it as quickly as he did. But yeah, no. I mean, as soon as the cast was announced, I was like, okay, I'm I'm well up for this, and uh, I'm happy to report it really lived up to my expectations. I had mm. a great time with it. Yeah, Adam, we saw this out in Venice, didn't we? Where yeah. it had its world premiere, and it did well. It took home at least an award for Olivia Colman for actress. Yeah, it I think even be... before we we saw it, there was whispers of best actor awards and nominations for Olivia Colman particularly. But I, th- I think the three lead women in this are, are all superb. Mm-hmm. I mean, just listening to that clip, Rachel Vice's delivery of Badger is, is <laughs> sublime. Um, and it is really a film that celebrates the, the power of these women. And by contrast, all the men, although they, they kind of hold some power, they're all horribly narcissistic and preening and just squabbling and sort of simpering idiots, most of them. But they just happen to be in the aristocracy and wearing sort of silly wigs. And mm-hmm. It's a fascinating study of, of British class and the political system as it was back then, if you're into that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. This is a costume drama, but it's not the sort of stuffy English costume drama. It's not Shakespeare no, no, in Love. No. It's not Madness of King George. This is something a bit different, right? This is from Yorgos Lanthimos's askew perspective on British culture and class and so on. So would you would call this a tragic comedy? But it's very funny, Hannah, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that clip alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and even watching the trailer, I think you get a kind of sense that it's it's got something about it and I was actually kind of surprised it's not if you thought that like Killing of a Sacred Deer was horribly depressing then this is you know this is this is comparatively much lighter in tone Mm -hmm. but still like I think particularly towards the end of the film it it does get incredibly sad and incredibly sort of um, depressing (laughs) but it is yeah I'm going to use the word romp because that's exactly (laughs) what it is it's just you know Everyone involved seems to be having the time of their life, and that's kind of what you want from a, a period drama, in my opinion. Right. Same when we're going to talk about Barry Lyndon later, and I, I kind of got the same feeling watching that again as I did watching The Favourite, where it's just like, you know, it, it transports you to a different time, a different place. And I think what's interesting about this as well, it's kind of a period that we don't really know much about. It's mm-hmm. that weird sort of kind of post-Tudor, like Stuart, like... Mm-hmm. You know, nothing land. And uh, I know Sandy Powell, who did the costumes, didn't really have much to work from because nobody really documented kind of what was going on then. So she just kind of goes to town and adds all these sort of, you know, that the servants wearing denim and things. Mm-hmm. It's just the, these little sort of details that you notice that kind of make it a bit sort of skewed. 
it's like Yorgos for beginners. I think this it's kind of, it's mm. much more accessible than these other films. I think more so than Dogtooth and his <laughs> Greek yeah. weird wave. I love Dogtooth and mm-hmm. Alps, and uh, I, I think the the lobster's got its moments, but kind of didn't really end up in a place that I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And I really wasn't a fan of Killing a Sacred Deer. Um, this is a lot less uh, misanthropic and and sort of just grimly black comedic and. Mm-hmm. You know the performances really, and 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 the details. You say, Hannah, like the the craft that has gone into this are are the kind of main factors in in its rewatch value. Just comparing it quickly to to Barry Lyndon, mm. I think his use of like wide angle lenses and lots of like low camera angles, obviously adds to this sort of hyper real, mm-hmm. absurdist quality that the film has. But it also allows him to really frame and stage the scenes in a way where you're you're constantly like you're almost like assaulted with the amount of like detail and visual information in every, in every single scene like i mean it's obviously a very palatial you know environment setting but just the kind of costume detail every single wall is like adorned with ridiculous tapestries and and gold and yeah it's it's really like quite a wonderful film just to kind of look at but it doesn't make it seem like a, a, a an era that you'd want to live in perhaps it's still quite muddy and it's cold very stuffy and, dark. and very dark so and, much and, vomit in this movie as well like five five times i think that, okay. that a character throws up i was trying to count yesterday that's a good yeah i, I mean there's a yeah, there's a wonderful scene where olivia coleman is just she's gorging on a cake <laughs> and then just proceeding to vomit into a bucket that's being held by a small servant boy and, and he's getting his nice press uniform covered in sick and yeah, it's, it's, she just picks up the cake and keeps going. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the moments I really like because it is just. I mean, there's that famous phrase about like you know, nothing happened basically in, in Queen Anne's reign, mm-hmm. and uh, you really get that sense of of the mundanity of it and her existence. She's, she's obviously very infirm, and mm-hmm. but she still is in this position of power, and everyone is kind of falling over her and falling around her, and um, you know, she uses that in a very comedic way. I think mm-hmm. like has everyone basically on a very short leash and it's funny just to watch her well watch Olivia Coleman really flex yeah. out you know the character because it's it's sort of thing obviously we know her from things like Peep Show and she's got this like you know comedic quality to her range and this is a film that is it is quite tragic as you're saying there's you know requires a lot of like more dramatic acting from her but I love the way they've um, they've kind of imagined her as this almost like an infant. Like mm-hmm. she's an oldish, infirm uh, monarch, but she behaves like a child basically. And Olivia Coleman has so much fun playing that. It's been positioned as her almost star breakout role. I think quite <laughs> late into her career, we've seen her for decades on TV with Peep Show, Broadchurch, in films like Tyrannosaur, a very heavyweight performance there. But this might be her introduction to the states. Do you think that's well timed, Hannah? It's a long time coming. I remember when Broadchurch was optioned for the for the US market, and they took David Tennant but didn't take Olivia Coleman, and everyone was kind of like. Wow, that's like a big snub to. Well, I guess he'd been in Doctor Who, so well, he, he'd travelled yeah, already, and he'd and, done film, and yeah. and I think a lot of people were a bit like, "Oh, that's that's bizarre." But yeah. if that's what it took for her to get this role, then fine. Like, I'm so glad she never went and did US Broadchurch because it gave us the favourite. And mm-hmm. I can't. It's one of those roles where I think in you know in years to come we'll look back at it and be like, "There's no one else that could have played that role." I mm-hmm. think it really is her kind of like. If this is her legacy, then it's a really great legacy to have. Mm-hmm. And so I must give a shout out to Nicholas Holt, who plays the leader of the opposition, uh, Harley. And he is just like hilarious. He's so... <laughs> I, don't, I don't even have a word for it. Like he He's playing it so, so straight and so sincere. 
and just has yeah he just seems to be having the best time there's this great scene with um, in fact every scene he has with Emma Stone like mm-hmm. they have these kind of like clandestine interactions where he's trying to get her to do some spying for him and I just thought he was hilarious. It's kind of a shame he's not getting more recognition, like best supporting actor, because I think he really is like great know. in this. Yeah. Also, he's six foot three already, and he's wearing heels and a massive wig. There's a scene where he and Rachel Vice are like staring each other down, um, and the height difference is just like hysterical. I think Rachel Vice is, <laughs> is is pretty amazing in this. Oh, she's great. And in her this. costumes are fantastic as well. This is the thing we could just like sit here all day and be like, everything's just great in this, isn't it? You mm. know. And the other thing's all like, there's a scene where they're in. Um, Anne's bedroom and it's like all lit by candlelight and I was like wow that's kind of incredible you don't really see that kind of natural lighting in film and it's just yeah looking at the kind of amount of effort and love that has gone into making this kind of feel as much like the the court of Queen Anne as it could is is you know kind of staggering Mm -hmm. to me. We'll be talking about natural light in 18th century settings, uh, <laughs> later on with Barry Lyndon, of course. Uh, Adam, do we have any final comments on this before we give our scores? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd say is that as much as I enjoyed the film in the moment, it is one that left me with a sort of slight sense of shrugging oh. what was all that about, basically. As much as, you know, there are a lot of performances and, and, and things you can take away from this. I, I really like the last shot, which I won't sort of give away, but I just felt like as with a lot of his films, the idea of them, and actually, like in retrospect, the idea of them is still more attractive to me than than the overarching like statement or idea or theme of them. Like, I'm not really sure he sort of says a lot with this film. It is a really fascinating and funny character study, but yeah, it did leave me a little bit cold, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's the point. I mean, it is, it is I guess, about a film about not a lot happening. And mm. so, Hannah, you said that uh, you've been with Yorgos for some time. Uh, this is Yorgos <laughs> for beginners. You say, could this be your favourite? <laughs> no, but that's, that's horrible. No, I don't, no, not not, not my favourite. Where does it rank for you then? Um, okay, so I think Dogtooth is probably still my favourite, and then probably the Lobster. And then maybe this, and then Killing of Sacred Deer. Mm-hmm. And I still really like Killing of Sacred Deer. So I think, for me, he's kind of still yet to put a foot wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Yorgos fan. It will be such an interesting award season if this does make it through, doesn't it? Well, we shall see. But first, let's put our scores on this film. So this is Expectation, Enjoyment in Retrospect. Hannah, you go first. Uh, it's falls across the board for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, oh, I mean, he's one of those directors now where whenever he kind of announces his new project, I'm excited. So, yeah, for... And four and four, and I've seen. I went to see it again yesterday, kind of to refresh it in my mind. And I was still like, "Yeah, this is this mm-hmm. is really good." Adam, yeah, I mean, as I said, I didn't really like uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, but his track record has has been pretty good up to now. And this cast was very very tantalising. So I'd say four in anticipation, probably a four at the time, and then a three in retrospect. Mm. Well, that was the favourite in cinemas now. Up next, we'll go off to a tiny model village with Welcome to Marwen. Based on a true story, Welcome to Marwen follows Mark Hogenkamp, a man who recovers from a devastating attack by creating a fantasy world at one-eighth scale, a model village filled with action figure characters drawn from his own life who do battle with the SS in a meticulously crafted Second World War setting. Robert Zemeckis directs, bringing his performance capture techniques to bring the toys to life, and Steve Carell plays both Mark and his alter ego, Captain Hoagie. You have the most beautiful eyes. 
and the most amazing heels I've ever seen. They're called stilettos, but they won't be invented until 1954. It's weird, huh? A lot of weird stuff happens here in Marwin. A lot of stuff that makes no sense. Like how you got here. I just moved in across the street. What's your name? Nicole, without the E on the end, she says, to be continued. So, a lot of weird stuff happens in Welcome to Marwen. Mm-hmm. Adam, it's a character drama, PTSD, it's a spectacular motion capture adventure. Yeah. How do we approach this film? How do we get our teeth into it? Well, it's based on a, a 2010 documentary called Marwen Cole, which mm-hmm. I would really highly recommend and say, it, I mean, it's a really good companion piece to this movie and actually probably essential viewing, actually, if you do want to learn a bit more about Mark Hogenkamp the circumstances which basically left him with partial brain damage and with memory loss. I think that's one aspect of this film that they brush over a little bit, like not the attack itself, but the memory loss, Mm -hmm. the idea that he basically created this model village anew as a way to, I guess it's a a form of self-therapy and and art as therapy, but essentially it's just to to create this this new world and find his own identity and personality again. Mm -hmm. And Robert Zemeckis, you know, we, we... I think he's had a bit of a hit and a miss late late career. Mm-hmm. But certainly his motion performance capture animation films, things like Polar Express and Beowulf, like they are films that have got quite a big fan base, I think, and haven't always performed particularly well at the box office, but his work with it with that technique is always kind of pushing, you know, that, that frontier and I think he, he uses it to quite magical effect in this film. I mean the opening scene that we see is actually Steve Carell as his sort of fighter pilot, US military alias. And, you know, he, he he's constantly cutting back and forth between the, the very sort of mundane reality of Hogan Camp's real world existence and then these these yeah, these really immersive, spectacular scenes where everyone they're action men figures. Um so you can see their joints and they they have this weird plasticky sheen. I've read a few people saying it's like quite off putting and there's a slight uncanny valley aspect to it but I think that's obviously intended and mm. you know you're, you're not meant to think that these are just like real people it's, it is this fantasy it's a strange film I think for a Hollywood biography it's one of the stranger I can think that's ever been made um, for, for a stu- major studio to back a movie like this feels like a big risk and you know the film's not performed well at the US box office unfortunately well, um, his last few films I mean what were they The Walk The Walk yeah he did Flight was, a, was almost in the Oscar conversation for the, the lead performance there the Flight did quite well mm-hmm. interestingly The Walk I assumed was based on Man the, on Wire Man the, on Wire Oscar documentary it was, it was actually the other way around in that the inspiration for for the walk came from a meeting between Zemeckis and um, I forget the guy's name, sorry, who's it's like Rene something. Oh, the, the, the Frenchman who actually did the walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hours, yeah. They basically decided they were going to do this film like, years and years before. Oh, really? Yeah, so the, the idea for the walk came kind of before, I think, the documentary. Oh. This one's the other way around, whether it was the documentary that inspired Zemeckis. But 
Know, this seems to have all the ingredients to have been fairly successful. Mm. I don't know whether it's just been marketed badly. Uh, mm. It's a slightly weird one to I do sell. wonder if there's going to be another, you know, if he, if he keeps this going and he makes more lavish blockbuster movies out of documentaries, maybe he could adapt the Bross documentary we were just talking about earlier. That would be, <laughs> I would, that would be I would, something. I would pay to see that. Motion capture twins. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> Hannah, you'd seen the documentary. But you, you were a fan of the documentary, in fact. I, I think you put on a screening of it last year. Yeah, Sophie Monks Kaufman and I. Um, did a screening of it and I yeah I, I very much like the documentary and I think the documentary is a much better film than Welcome to Marwin mm-hmm. but I'm a huge Steve Carell fan so I was excited about this just because I love Steve and I'm you know I'm always excited when he gets to do a movie that kind of challenges him as an actor and, and is more kind of serious and I think this is a good role for him I think he gets a lot to do and I think he's very good with a character who is not He is sympathetic, but he's difficult and he does a lot of things that you kind of raise your eyebrows at in that the way he talks. So this uh, the Leslie Man character, Nicole, who moves in across the road from him, he becomes kind of fixated on her Mm -hmm. and you're kind of like, oh, wow, this is like straying into quite uncomfortable territory. But there's something about Steve Carell. You you never kind of lose him. You know, you're, you're always like invested in in the journey that Mark is going on and I think uh, I think it was a really a good casting choice but the thing I will say about this film is that it is very much uh, Zemeckis in like Forrest Gump mode even mm. like the score you know it all feels very kind of this man who has an impairment fixates on this lovely woman who comes into his life and she has to kind of like you know <laughs> gently <laughs> right. I don't want to spoil it but you know there, there are a lot of similarities between the two and the other thing I found quite jarring about it was um, part of the reason um, that Mark was attacked is that he likes to wear women's women's shoes mm-hmm. and whenever this happened in the film maybe it was just a screening I was at but whenever this came up in the film people laughed and I was like this oh. isn't like a funny thing I don't is, is understand it laughs, do you think in the film or? I think some scenes yes the, the problem is, like, I can't really th- think of a better way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want this film to make a joke out of this story because it's not a joke. And, you know, it's a really harrowing thing that happened to him. And, yeah, I, that for me just really sort of, you know, set my teeth on edge. I say it might have just been the screening I was at. I mean, the film sets itself up as a comedy. I mean, right. it's obviously mm. this slightly bittersweet redemption story for this guy who's who's suffered this this trauma but at the same time you're there are laughs in this film a lot of it comes from the motion capture sequences because they're quite silly mm-hmm. they're quite fun and i think maybe that's the the reason like it mm. is it's quite i mean even in the, those scenes where captain hoagie is is like fending off the nazis he's often wearing like bright red stilettos mm. and, and the other characters kind of comment on that because they are surprised and, and I think you're supposed to feel the same way Yeah, um, and I, I think it's it, it sh- they should be commended um, Zemeckis and the screenwriter for addressing mm. the cross-dressing and not just right. kind of brushing it to one side as a lot of Hollywood biopics often do mm-hmm. but yeah I think as you say it's quite a tricky one to handle I'm not sure that they could have done much else with it there's this um, other strange detail which I was very confused by is where it kind of implies that one of the attackers was a neo-Nazi. Right. <laughs> that, that, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's a weird 
thing to just add into the film to kind of like make a reference between oh neo-nazis and they're nazis in his kind of like marwen mm. world and i was like that is weird to me i, I think, think this is one of those things where hollywood films always have to spoon feed you information mm. and make connections in a very literal way and you know they, they established the fact that Mark Hogenkamp was an artist and a, and a kind of sketch artist but prior to the attack. But there's no real reason why he would suddenly create this fictional Belgian World War II era village. Even though he was obviously a talent, he, he had some kind of creative energy and talent, why did he turn it to this? Like, it's not really explained. And I think mm-hmm. the film is always a bit uncomfortable, a bit <laughs> awkwardly tries to draw these connections between the scenes where you're kind of immersed in this fantasy world and the reality. So every character has like a direct parallel um, yeah. or an equivalent in the real world. The thing that slightly put me off about it, and the working title of the film was actually The Women of Marwen, hmm. um, is that Marwen called this little village that he creates is, is occupied by these Barbie doll-esque uh, women and they're all like kind of famous actors. So you've got like Janelle Monae and mm-hmm. Gwendolyn Christie and Diane Kruger's in it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is that these characters aren't really fleshed out in the real world setting. Um, they are they are all quite kind of hollow and there's not mm-hmm. a lot to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that's like it intended or whether it's just they didn't bother to really write them, um, you know, beyond their, their sort of function within Marwan. I think they've missed a little bit of a trick there because um, the the most imp- you know the most important thing really that this film is trying to leave you with is like these women basically coming to Mark's aid and helping him through this process and you know they're all very like sympathetic towards him and um, very kindly and there's no real reason for that other than they do just maybe take pity on him. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are like his care workers and people who've helped him through rehab and there's the woman at the the local hobby shop who he, he has this sort of like will they won't they underlying sort of air of romance about it and I actually think Merritt Weaver who plays that that character she's really great um, we saw her in a film Charlie Says the new Mary Harron yes, film yeah. kind of a similar role um, although right. a very different mm-hmm. type of film and di- different character but yeah I think she's like the best thing in this film for mm-hmm. me probably deserves a little bit more screen time and deserved a little bit more character development. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe one of the things it could have actually done without was the whole animation element. One of the films that I, I was kind of like comparing it to the whole time was Lars and the Real Girl, which right, is yes. the Craig, mm-hmm. what's his name? Uh, the guy who did Itonia, as I call him. And I think Lars and the Real Girl is a really, really good film that kind of deals with the same thing of this oddball character who develops a sort of unusual coping mechanism for his loneliness. But that's maybe how they should have approached this film is that you can have the kind of quote strange thing but you don't have to be as literal with it and I think the literalness of it was kind of throwing me out of the film and I was more interested in the real life sequences and every time we went into an animated sequence I was like can we just go back to real mm. life please because I'm quite bored of it but I understand like that's Zemeckis' whole thing yeah but, that's, that's what interest, clearly yeah. interests him in the story <laughs> he, he, he's fascinating that he's one of the last people standing from that 80s auteurist uh, technologically driven filmmaker mm. still making films on this scale of course Steven Spielberg has managed to do this thing where he can do a ready player one and a post in the same year but Robert Zemeckis having that amazing run from the 80s onwards with the Back to the Future films, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm. um, Death Becomes Her, which I think is a film worthy of uh, recognition. He's now still 
plugging away. This film has the Amblin logo at the front. It, it, it seems like a film out of time, right? Yeah, no, it, it really does. Um, maybe that's one thing that should be mentioned in its credit. Like, the, I mean, that this whole story is set kind of, I guess, what, the early noughties? It really feels like it, it's set then. Yeah. You know, he, he manages to go back in time quite a fair bit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it does feel like it's kind of lost in time and there's... It's strange to make a film that's kind of dealing with all these, you know, big questions about trauma and uh, sexuality and masculinity, but for it to still kind of feel so old and, you know, a bit outdated. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Yeah, I was just going to throw in the fact... I I interviewed Robert Zemeckis recently for this and uh, I kind of put it to him that there's this recurring theme or character archetype in his films which is this like lone male protagonist who for some reason is is kind of cut off or detached from everyone else and often often has to kind of build a world around them to to sort of survive and and you know everything from like Forrest Gump to Castaway um The Walk is another recent mm-hmm. example on this I mean he was actually like quite bemused by that and didn't kind of see the connection <laughs> but I think I think there is something in that and it's it is a fascinating uh, you know through line through, mm-hmm. through his career I just think in this case he doesn't quite get close enough to the subject and to like really exploring and understanding who Mark Hogan is and he, and he's clearly more more interested in the in the fantasy uh, mm. sequences mm-hmm. and they are, they are a lot of fun I think and there's some nice you know nods to I mean there's like a good back to the future reference and I think go in expecting to get more out of those scenes because I certainly did <laughs> Adam let's put some scores on this I think three across the board mm-hmm. um, I think he just makes very sentimental films but his approach to this kind of story which we've seen before and, and obviously his kind of technical prowess always interests me so I think probably a three for anticipation I don't think it goes any higher or lower than that. Hannah? Maybe like a 3-3-2. Three, three, I think mm. that Mark Hogenkamp is such an interesting person and this film doesn't really do justice to him as a real human being. I think there's a lot more to his story that kind of gets missed out. Like we were saying, we don't really get a sense of kind of, you know, why he turned to this. And if you watch the documentary, I think it goes a lot more in depth about who he was before the attack and after the attack immediately and kind of who he is now. Mm-hmm. Well who he was 10 years ago when the documentary was made. Yeah. But yeah, I think he's really sort of worth looking up if, if you're listening to this. Go away and watch Marlon Cole and mm. then maybe watch Welcome to Malwin. Yeah, I'd recommend the documentary as well, Adam. You, you already have. So that was Welcome to Marwen. Up next, back to the 18th century for Barry Lyndon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Stanley Kubrick's 1975 epic is adapted from the novel by William Makepeace Thackeray about a young Irish lad making his way up and down the social ladder in 18th century Europe. Ryan O'Neill is that lad whose pursuit of a fortune is entirely governed by his own good or bad fortune, and things don't start off well for him, as we hear in this clip. There must be 20 guineas in gold here, Father. Well, well, well. You seem to be a very well set up young gentleman, sir. Captain Feeney, that's all the money my mother had in the world. Mightn't I be allowed to keep it? I'm just one step ahead of the law myself. I killed an English officer in a duel, and I'm on my way to Dublin till things cool down. Mr. Barry, in my profession, we hear many such stories. Yours is one of the most intriguing and touching I've heard in many weeks. Nevertheless, I'm afraid I cannot grant your request. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll allow you to keep those fine pair of boots, which in normal circumstances I would have for myself. The next town is only five miles away, and I suggest you now start walking. Mightn't I be allowed to keep my horse? I should like to oblige you, but with people like us, we must be able to travel faster than our clients. Good day, young sir. So Barry Lyndon was something of a disappointment at the time, at least judging by Stanley Kubrick's standards. But it's become something of a deep cut in his filmography over the years as its influence has grown. Hannah, this is a big movie, over three hours long. What did you make of it? Big old movie, yeah. The first time I saw this, I was about 19. And uh, when I was at university, uh, Leeds Film Festival, one of the best UK film festivals out there, put a screening on. I had no idea what to expect. 19, I was very kind of, you know, green. I hadn't seen a lot of movies then. And I was like, what am I watching? And I loved it. And so I was really happy to have an excuse to go and rewatch it again. And you know, for a film that's nearly three hours, I think it actually moves at quite a pace. I think it doesn't drag at all. Mm-hmm. I, I get lost every time, you know, because it's just so... I just love this film. I, I think that to make a film that's this funny but still a period drama in the 70s is kind of wild to me. You know, I can kind of understand why people were like, what? Like, mm-hmm. what is this? And um, I was reading that... Ryan O'Neill's performance was kind of like people were like he's terrible (laughs) but that's like the point Barry Lyndon's kind of you know a very wooden character and I think everything kind of you know just happens to him and that's why I like Brian Lyndon so much I think Mm -hmm. just things just happen and he's just kind of like well guess this is my life now Mm -hmm. and that's you know his Irish accent is pretty bad it's so bad yeah but it's actually yeah, something of a favourite. We had a few tweets. We had Bella Song saying one of my favourite films with a heart in eyes emoji. Um, and then uh, Giselle TV saying the Barry Lyndon is my favourite Kubrick joint. Adam, is this one of your favourite Kubrick joints? I think it's up there. As I expect a lot of people, um, I was introduced to Kubrick through Full Metal Jacket and The Shining mm. and kind of later 2001 and this. And I definitely think if, if you've never seen a Kubrick film, this maybe isn't the one to start mm. with. Although saying that, you know, it does kind of rattle along. I think a lot of that comes from the dialogue and the line delivery and it is just wonderfully paced and 
uh, it is a real ensemble as well. I mean, we talk about Ryan O'Neill's character and his performance, but just everyone in this. Everyone um, else is amazing. Everyone's amazing yeah. in this. Kubrick just has this wonderful way of getting really kind of natural performances out of everyone. But mm-hmm. like whoever he comes across just seems like they've they've kind of always been in this in this setting in this world um nothing feels like <laughs> jarring or out of place well, i think it's definitely one of his best screenplays oh it's um, fantastic yeah. there's such, such a dry sense of humor to it it's fascinating but you know with this film and then also with the f- well not the favorite yorgos lanthimos didn't write that one but yorgos lanthimos is obsessed in these english language movies of the the formality mm. of english mm. of the english language and barry linden is such, such a delicious I think use of language throughout some of my favorite scenes are the, are the like the dueling scenes mm-hmm. they're, yeah. they're the ones that always like stand out to me and and, and yeah I, I always kind of remember fondly but yeah it's, it is all about that formality and mm-hmm. just the strange rituals and practices and, and a lot of which you know you can kind of relate to certain aspects of it and, and you can kind of see a lot of contemporary British um, civility in this film. I don't even know if it was necessarily made for like a modern audience or to be viewed by or a modern audience. Yeah, yeah, it is quite kind of indulgent in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's a very singular kind of vision and uh, yeah. I think Kubrick really understands the makeup of the British aristocracy and, and just British life. Mm-hmm. It's a film that um, at the time, it, it was nominated for a few Oscars. I love playing this game. Um, <laughs> so it was nominated for Best Picture in 1975, up against a really good year. Yeah. Do you want to hazard a guess at what else was nominated that year for Best Picture? 1975. Um, I can give you a director's name. Go on. Spielberg? I'm not going to get it. I'm, uh, I'm useless with this I, kind I, of I thing. I want to say like... 75. I want to say the conversation was this year. This is post. So this is after the Coppola years. So let me, let me just put you out your misery. So the <laughs> other nominees that year were Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. a previous film club uh, film, Jaws, Spielberg, oh. Nashville, Robert Altman, and then the winner for Best Picture that year was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's a good year. What a year. What a, what a banner year that was. Exactly. And then for Best Director, Federico Fellini was nominated for Amar Khan. Oh, okay. Back in the days where you could get a foreign language yeah, yeah. Oscar nomination. But he didn't win anything, and Pauline Kael called it a coffee table film. And it does have that aspect. <laughs> it's a very beautiful film. These massive, wide compositions, these slow zooms out of tableau. This, you mentioned scenes lit by candlelight earlier, mm. Hannah, and that's, he was working with these new lenses that NASA had pioneered so he could shoot these scenes lit light, by yeah. hundreds of candles having to be painstakingly lit for every <laughs> take I'm sure so there is an experimental aspect there yeah and, and famously I think Ken Adam the production designer had a nervous breakdown <laughs> on this film because of, of Kubrick's just the attention to detail and mm-hmm. I mean I, I imagine it was not easy to kind of set and light some of these scenes mm-hmm. um, I think there is some artificial light used in the film sure. it's a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer that it's like completely natural but all the candlelit stuff is, is obviously natural it gives it such a strange orange hue or soft focus mm-hmm. hue that now doesn't look realistic or naturalistic at all it looks even more heightened than probably the costume dramas of the day there's another interesting aspect that only came to pass last year. So you have uh, the young Lord Bullingdon, who is the, the, the antagonist towards Barry Lyndon in the second half of the film. Both the young and older 
actors who played that role had films out last year. Mm. So Leon Vitale, who played the older Bullingdon, um, had a film about him called Film Worker. He became Stanley Kubrick's personal assistant for many years and is now almost the guardian of Kubrick's legacy. But then the young Bullingdon is Dominic Savage, who directed The Escape with Gemma Arterton oh, okay. last year. Oh, wow. He's gone into a career in TV and film directing. Oh, interesting. The legacy goes on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, talk about Kubrick's legacy and you can see straight away how someone like Lanthimos has been influenced by this film and not just kind of narratively but you know formally mm-hmm. he's one of those directors who just his tendrils kind of reach out very far exactly it's the sight and sound decade list of best films mm. of all time with their hundreds of voters it's in the critics list in the I think it's 60 odd or something but it's in the directors list much higher Yeah, <laughs> and some of the directors who voted for it it's so telling to see how wide its influence is but specifically what is inspiring them. Lenny Abramson the director Roy Anderson the droll Nordic filmmaker Richard Ayoade, Antonio Campos Mike Lee, Richard Lester Andrew Dominic, a fantastic mix of people, Athena Rachel Sangari as well. There's they're taking this dryness of humour, this... I mean, Mike Lee is obviously taking the runtime as well for his period <laughs> movies. Mm. But there's something here. When I've watched this film now maybe four or five times over the last few years and I keep returning to it, it might in the long run become my favourite Kubrick film, or at least the one I've watched the most. And it's because of every single one of these supporting characters. Every f- scene has a standout performance. We had Captain Feeney, the very uh, polite highwayman in the clip just yeah. there but Leonard Rossiter as Captain John Quinn then Frank Middlemas as Charles Linden who has the that amazing death scene where <laughs> he's just so he laughs himself to death <laughs> and then just bursts out in a, in a gasp of, of, of air trying to fiddle with his whatever his heart pills whatever it is I uh, tweeted about Mary Keane yesterday when I was rewatching it she's so good the scene where she's kind of firing the um, the reverend is like just just incredible Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think it really is more than the sum of its parts. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, everything about it, you're kind of like, wow, it's incredible that this film exists. We are lucky to have Barry Lyndon. Yeah. So cool and cynical and bitty and episodic, but then it can have that second dual scene at the end, as you mentioned, Adam, where oh. it can just become this masterclass of tension, mm. where you have the, was it the Saraband Oh yeah, Handel Saraband, yeah. For, for playing for two hours of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I could never hear that piece of music again, mm-hmm. like without thinking of Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. It has become sort of so and all the other kind of pieces in it as well. There's a lot of like classical music that I'm like, oh yeah, wow, this is of course it's now become so closely associated with this film, mm-hmm. which is kind of the mark of an incredible film when you can, you know, take a piece of Handel music and suddenly it's like, it doesn't belong to Handel anymore, it belongs to Kubrick. And this was probably the third or fourth time Kubrick had done that across his, yeah. his career. <laughs> so where does this rank for us in Kubrick's filmography? Adam, you said you came to this after his more populist or popular 80s movies. Does this rank highly for you? Yeah, I think it's up there. I mean, I'm not sure I could stick my neck out and pick a favourite of his because I just every time I come back to them I mean I saw this on the big screen so BFI re-released a couple of years ago and I think I came away from that thinking yeah this is definitely my favourite but then I'll go and re-watch Full Metal Jacket or something in, or Clockwork Orange and, and prefer that but yeah it's definitely up there Hannah yeah very much the same you know I, I think the joy of being a film critic is that we don't have to pick favourites when it comes to people like Kubrick we can just abstain and say well they're all pretty good aren't they you know yeah I mean it's definitely I'd say like top three if I had to pick you know top three I'm the same as you Adam it's one of those ones where I think this is my favourite then I go and watch Doctor Strange Love, <laughs> or I go and see Eyes Wide Shut again and it's just 
It's a good good filmography. That guy was a good filmmaker. He was pretty good, you know. Hot I don't, I don't know right if here. people listening might be familiar with Mr. Kubrick, but, you know, he was pretty good. But if we have any comments out there in the ether, please let us know <laughs> at Truth and Movies on Twitter at lwlies.com slash podcast or at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. So that sews up this week. What films are we discussing next week? Let's have a look. So new releases. We have Stan and Ollie, the... Lauren Hardy film starring Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. We have Colette starring Keira Knightley. And for Film Club next week, homework is 24-hour party people, Michael Winterbottom's musical history of Manchester from the 1970s to the 1990s, starring Steve Coogan to tie in with Stan and Ollie. Do we have a, a take on 24-hour party people round table, guys? It's been a long time since I've seen it, but just, yeah, remember remember the soundtrack. It's one of those films that seem to always be on like film four when I was sort of in, in, in university or in college and watched it a few times then. But yeah, it's probably Steve Coogan's best screen performance, I think, big screen mm. performance. I feel like ever since then he's just been making films that are quite similar to this, you know, like The Look of Love and things. And okay. not, you know. But yeah, I, I saw this when I was a teenager and I was like amazed. I was like, this is great. This is, you know, this is incredible. And I, I don't know if it would hold up. Maybe I'll go away and watch it and see if it's as good as I remember it being. I loved the film when it came out. But <laughs> listeners, uh, let us know if you're mad for it or if it gives you a case of the Blue Mondays at the usual channels. We'll be discussing those three films next week. just leaves me time to say thank you to Adam and Hannah for joining me today. I have been Michael Leader, and this, as always, has been a 7 Digital production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.